Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 147, which is a pseudo-prime number. It's not prime. No, it's not prime. It's, it's not uh, pseudo-prime. Well, it seems like it should be prime. So seems like it should be prime. It's rather a different thing. I don't think so. As we were talking about in the long run up to today, uh, we are incidentally Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. I was I was going to explain that talking about how it's three less than one fifty and one fifty being a multiple of three. Clearly, it's not prime. But forty nine by three, seven by seven by three. That is a wicked method you've got there. Yeah, I'm going to have to uh, adopt that method. There will be fewer pseudo primes if I do. (laughs) Don't. No, this is not a good category. It's no, not a good category. At no, all. it's not a good category. But you know, the the era of good categories is over. No, so. wrong. <laughs> Here we are. Part of the reason we come to you every week is in defense of this. Is this sounds banal and uninteresting? But in defense of good categories, in defense of the concept that there are real categories in the universe that are therefore both be. Can, that can be understood and are therefore worth defending as categories. Well, I know from people who come up to me and say this, and I know they come up to you and say this also, that uh, the role we seem to be playing is keeping people sane. Now, I notice that nobody ever says we made them sane, right? It's a matter of uh, preserving a holding sane state. Holding on to, yeah. Holding on to what sanity they still have rather than generating or bootstrapping sanity from nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, So anyway, that's something we might take up later. But um, for the moment, keeping people sane seems like a a reasonable investment. Yes. And in service of that, we have, uh, in addition to these live streams, we have guest episodes that uh, Brett is putting out. You've got two now uh, with members of the military and former, current and former members of the military. Whistleblowers. Whistleblowers from the military with regard to vaccine mandates, uh, COVID vaccine mandates in the military. Uh, you've got another guest episode coming out uh, to Tomorrow, Halloween. I think, yeah. uh, no, on, on Monday. Monday. Um, also in service of hopefully keeping people sane and maybe bringing people into a greater understanding of how to uh, maintain sanity and live in this crazy hyper novel world. We have Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, uh, which uh, which is being published in all sorts of cool languages that we don't speak. So we just have to take their word for it uh, that it's that it's being translated right. I just saw the cover for the Chinese edition, and it's got a whale on it. And I was asked to okay or not okay the cover, and I said I I guess it's a it's a nice whale, although I don't really get the connection. But yeah, it's it's. I was it's like, as long not- as it's about whales and not whaling, which we are not in favor of, uh, then uh, then okay. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're in sufficient pain, whaling is justified, but... It's spelled differently. I'm not sure if that's a feature or a bug in this case. (laughs) (laughs) I think that may be a good thing from the point of view of that uh, particular pun. Yep. Okay, so we are on YouTube and Odyssey. Uh, Chat is live on Odyssey if you're watching live. Uh, other other things that we or one of us does that uh, we hope that you can use to uh, help keep yourself sane and uh, share with others uh, is Natural Selections, which is my substack. This week I published what I called a PSA, a public service announcement to mama bears uh, to defend your children. In it, I point out that mothers, being women, are more likely to be both agreeable, which is a term of art in psychology, uh, referring to uh, being less likely to rock the boat and disagree with those in front of you. And um, also uh, that women are more likely to behave in ways that reduce harm and that reduce risk. And that both of these tendencies are being gamed by 
authorities and others uh, to convince women that the very things that are harming children are the things that are not harming them. And thus, um, mothers in particular, I, I feel, are being gamed. And so I implore women to uh, to start asking questions of what they are hearing from everyone, you know, us, authorities, everyone, and and come to your own conclusions. And at the point that you discover, even if you're days, weeks, months, years into affirming or complying with something that you come to understand is harming your children, stop. Stop it and and reverse course. And even if this means in, in, in the moment your child or children are going to be upset with you and it's going to cause, um, uh, it's going to wreak havoc in the moment, consider the truth of a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, what are the conversations you will have if, and I use those words advisedly, if you affirm your child's declared gender identity or you comply with the injunctions to give your children experimental medical treatments uh, against a, a disease that doesn't really affect them, then uh, you know, stop and think about it. And so in, in that, that's on my, that's on natural selections this week. Let me just say, yeah. I think that I have not read your piece yet. I was, as you know, uh, in transit and- Which we will talk about. We yep. will talk about it. But anyway, I haven't read your piece, but I really like your framing. This is the first I've heard it, that basically maternal instincts are being gamed. Yeah. In other words, maternal instincts are being and really used. Female instincts, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. But they're being on. flipped yeah. on their head. They're being used in a paradoxical way to do exactly the opposite of what they are there for, right? The protection mm -hmm. of children is being compromised by the misapplication of these maternal instincts. That matches exactly what I've seen. Yeah. Um, thank you. And I, I mean, I, obviously, I think it's right. It's what I'm. It's what I'm proposing. And you know, there there are many people who are saying things like this. Uh, but, you know, specifically, for instance, the idea that if you do not affirm your, your child's new declaration that they are the sex that they are not, they might commit suicide. And then how will you live with yourself? Well, I would say, look carefully into those claims and ask yourself, if you allow your child to take puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or get surgery, they will be compromised forever. And then how will you live with yourself? Like that, that, that is the harm that you can actually avoid. So um, all of which, you know, I encourage you to, to go look at that piece. And I also made the audio read of that, my audio read of that piece um, publicly available, um, not just for paying subscribers this week, usually the audio reads are for paying subscribers only. Um, but the, the little piece of graphic that I made, and Zach, you can show now, uh, to go along with the audio piece, do not affirm, do not comply. Uh, we are, we've turned into merch. Um, which, because we don't yet have our new studio, we can't um, just sh show you on the site uh, just yet. But I want to say, so do not affirm, do not comply. Dark Horse shirts are, are going to be available at some point within the next few minutes on our new store, um, shirts, hoodies, uh, and the like. And uh, in service of that, I also wanted to say a few things about our new store. Sure. Uh, because we, uh, we mentioned a couple months ago, I think, that we have a new store. And I didn't really say much more. We had a cat fight in the, in the background here. Um, that we're just so thrilled to be working with these guys. Uh, it's, it's a small uh, family operation. It's a couple, just like we are, running a, their own business uh, out of the middle of the country, out of, out of Kentucky. Um, and they are, uh, they're, just, they're just awesome. They, um, 
an independent small business um, who are supporting uh, independent voices. Uh, if you have any, ever have a problem uh, with an order, you reach out to them, you're going to reach a real human being, uh, one of their small team, um, all of whom are awesome. And they themselves are Dark Horse fans is how we came to be familiar with them. So uh, we have you know shared interests, shared values. And basically, when you know, if you see something there, if you just want Dark Horse uh, branded merchandise or a Do Not Affirm, Do Not Comply shirt, or you know, they've actually got their own print shop too, so they're doing all the printing and the embroidering in house. So the quality control is extraordinary. The quality um, is high, and the quality control is excellent. Yeah, the quality is high, very high. The quality control is excellent, and so you know, if you want that, uh, you you no longer have to get that through some sort of big, uh, amorphous, anonymous thing you are supporting us but you're also supporting another small business um uh that is both a a, a media a media management operation and a, and a print shop uh, so we we encourage you to do that and that's at uh, darkhorsestore.org okay uh we are supported by our audience through you know uh the ads that we run which we'll get to the three ads that we run at the beginning uh uh every week and through um people paying to access natural selections through our Patreons. Tomorrow we have our private Q&A, our monthly private Q&A on my Patreon. Next week we will have, you will have your private conversations on your Patreon. And, you know, we no longer make money the way that people usually do if you're seeing us on YouTube. We're not, we're not, we were monetized and we got demonetized by YouTube. And we'll be talking a little bit today, actually, again, as we have before about misinformation and disinformation. Um, but we were demonetized, uh, presumably because some, some intern there imagined that we were guilty of mis or disinformation. And, uh, and, you know, we weren't, we oh, weren't. I don't think it was an intern, but okay. Um, and we, you know, we continue to be demonetized by, by YouTube. Uh, so as such, we encourage you to join us at our Patreons or on my Substack or any other way that you you can. And uh, and also, if you are interested in any of the ads that we the sponsors that we read ads for, please do consider going there. We actually are very very discerning, and we only read uh, we only take sponsors uh, who make products or offer services that we really truly stand for. So without further ado, here we go with the ads for this week. So our first sponsor this week is Seed. Seed is a company focused on bacteria and the microbiome, and they have a terrific probiotic called DS01 Daily Symbiotic. I always prefer eating real food to taking pills, but I have to say I really love this product. There are a lot of things that you can do to enhance your health. Our sign-off here at Dark Horse includes three of them. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. But a lot is hidden in those words. What, for instance, constitutes good food? Good food is real food, whole food, food that has been alive recently and was grown with care and conditions as ancient as possible given the constraints of the 21st century. But even, any, even many people who eat such a diet are missing something. We contain multitudes. Every individual human contains so many other organisms, some of which may harm us, but many of which exist with us in harmony. We need them. This is why probiotics can be an important tool in a healthy lifestyle, even if you eat nutrient-dense food and avoid processed foods and sugar. That said, probiotics are kind of the new thing, aren't they? Everyone's taking them or thinking of taking them. It can seem like maybe it's just a fad, the newest fashion. Good news, though. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. Not all probiotics are created equal. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic. It contains 24 distinct probiotic strains in a two-in-one capsule, and this is, this is the magic, that protects the probiotics until they hit the colon, where they are most effective. 
if you've taken a probiotic before and not really felt a difference, it's likely because the good bacteria basically got dissolved in your stomach acid before they uh, hit your colon. Seed is designed differently, and that's why it works. Seed's daily symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. Many who have used seed report improvements to digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. I've actually heard from some of these, some of these people. Uh, it's quite impressive. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 20% off off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com, S-E-E-D.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse. Okay, our second sponsor today is Soul, S-O-L-E, a sustainable orthopedic footwear company. Soul is one of our two footwear sponsors and we truly love them both. They are, they're basically, between the two of them, they're the only shoes we wear anymore, practically. They are quite different from one another, yet both have an evolutionary approach to creating shoes that help feet get and stay healthy and people become more mobile. Soul intentionally brings structure back with both their shoes and their footbeds. Soul aims with its footwear to return our feet to health. And the shoes by Soul are beautiful. I've been wearing a, por- a pair of Soul Districts, a low-zipped short boot and camel-colored vegetable tan suede leather everywhere. And I love them. Soul footbeds are the industry standard and over-the-counter supportive insoles and inserts. They are moldable for custom comfort, give you all the benefits of personalized support at a fraction of the price of orthotics. Soul footbeds, which are made from recycled cork, include a signature supportive arch, which is clinically proven to produce arch strain in your feet up to 34%. This is especially effective in helping recover from plantar fasciitis, which affects more than 2 million Americans, along with a range of other ailments from shin splints to hip, knee, and back pain, Soil footbeds also promote neutral alignment and good posture and are particularly effective at preventing fatigue when standing for long hours on hard surfaces. The cats do not wear sole, uh, but if they could, I'm sure they would. Sole is on a mission to end foot pain in North America, so they are sending a free footbed to every zip code on the continent. Dark Horse listeners should visit yoursoul.com slash darkhorse, and if you live in a zip code in the U.S. or a postal code in the Canada where Soul hasn't yet shipped to, you'll receive a free performance medium footbed. They believe in the quality of their product so much that they're sure that once you feel the comfort, pain relief, performance enhancement, and injury prevention, prevention benefits of Soul footbeds, you will want them in every shoe that you own. Simply enter your zip code or postal code in the shipping section at checkout to stand a chance to get a totally free footbed while supplies last. And if your footbed isn't free because Soul has already shipped to your zip, you can still get 50% off by entering Dark Horse 50 at checkout. So far, Soul has shipped to 38% of the 41,000 zip codes in the U.S., so they've got a lot of giving to do. Help push those percentages by visiting yoursoul.com slash darkhorse today. All right, our final sponsor this week is Ned, a CBD company that stands out in a highly saturated CBD market. Ned was started by two friends who discovered their hypermodern lives were leaving them feeling empty, bewildered, and disconnected. Something about this way of life they say on their website just wasn't working, so they started Ned. You can buy CBD products in nearly every coffee shop or grocery store, but Ned's blends stand out. And now I'm going to speak as if I was you. I'm not going to do my devastatingly good impression of you. I'm just going to use your words. Do you have one? So good. Really? I've never heard yeah. it. Yeah. You keep it from me. It's, uh, it's, it's, it'll freak you out hearing yourself mm-hmm. as if you're standing in front of you. I don't believe you. Yeah, I don't really either. Um, <laughs> but anyway, here's okay. what you've said. You've said, I am particularly fond of their de-stress blend. Ned's de-stress blend is a one-to-one formula of CBD, CBG, made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp and also features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. 
CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. This combination leaves me, Heather, feeling a bit easier uh, with whatever comes my way. Many of the CBD companies out there source their hemp from individual farms. Individual? What other kind are there? Industrial farms in China. <laughs> Just like low-quality alcohol, however, low-quality CBD can have undesired effects. Ned is USDA-certified organic. All of Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA-certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Paonia, Colorado. You were going to call him indefensible, weren't you? I, Jonathan, <laughs> I apologize. If I was going to call you that, it was an error. All right. Also, Ned shares third-party lab reports and information about who farms their products and their extraction process on their site. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. They are chock-full of premium CBD and full-spectrum of active cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and trichomes. Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Dark Horse listeners get 15% off Ned products with the code DARKHORSE. Visit helloned.com slash darkhorse to get access, or hell on ed is another way you could pronounce that. H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash darkhorse to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Hell on ed. Hell on ed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, that's our... That's our sponsors. So uh, today we are going to talk about a number of things. And Brett, you are going to start us off um, by uh, talking a little bit about where you've been and what you've seen and what it means. Yeah. So I had the pleasure of visiting a country that I have been to exactly once and only briefly before. Mm -hmm. I was in Colombia. Um, I was invited to give a talk at a medical conference. Um, the conference was fascinating. I met very interesting people. And I will say, I had a number of thoughts about um, Colombia now having visited. The last mm -hmm. time I was there was, it was definitely 1997 or 1998. I cannot remember exactly which. I don't think it much matters. But at the time, there was exactly one place a gringo could go in Colombia, and if you even stepped out of that place, the risk of being kidnapped was incredibly high. This is not like when they tell you, oh, don't be out after dark in Managua where you have a yeah. high risk of being robbed, but your risk is still, you know, a tiny fraction of 1%. This was, if you step out of the zone, where you are protected by the military, the likelihood of you being captured by the FARC and being uh, having being held for ransom was through the roof. Um, Can I just say you know, the reason you ended up and it was Cartagena is, Cartagena, is the place that yeah. you ended up. Um, the reason that you ended up there is that uh, you were doing research in Panama and in Central America, unlike the places that we've been in South America, um, unless you have a long-term visa, which are very hard to get. 
uh, in Central America, you have to leave the country every, I think it's 90 days maybe, um, but you just have to leave the country for like 72 hours and then you can come back in and get another 90-day visa. Um, <clears throat> whereas in at least the places we've been in South America, um, there's a there's a cap on the number of days that uh, that an American, for instance, can spend in the country per calendar year, and you can't you can't get around it like that. But you had gone with a couple of the people you knew from Barro Colorado Island, where you were doing research, to Cartagena for 72 hours to deal with your to deal with the visa. It's interesting you said that. I don't remember that being the case. That that's why I did it. You're right about the pattern. It may have been that somebody else in my group needed to do it, and they were you know. Panama and Colombia are bordering. In fact, Panama used to be part of Colombia, um, and it was inexpensive to go. It's possible I've just forgotten that I was. I mean, you were my there. Own. You were there for um, so many months. You had to do a number of those trips, and that was one of them. Yeah, but in any case, I was in Cartagena. I didn't really know what Cartagena was when I was there. I was delighted by the place. It's a beautiful colonial city, very well preserved. Um, so it was lovely, but I actually, I was walking down the beach in Cartagena one day and I was stopped by a soldier who was like, yeah, don't, you can't go beyond this jetty, right? This is the end of where gringos can go. Um, so anyway, now and, here, it, and he wasn't saying because I'm the authority and I have a gun and I'm the big bad man. He was like, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to get disappeared. And I, you know, I, Having now returned to Colombia, I asked Colombians if that was an exaggeration, and everybody validated the story that this was that dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I think the most dangerous place on earth for at least those um, from from the from the United States. But anyway, so here I was returning uh, in 2022, mm -hmm. and I, which it, I should say it was supposed to be us, right? We were invited to give this talk, absolutely. And, uh, as it turns out, it was uh, there was stuff to do parenting-wise back home, and so we decided it could have been you, it could have been me. We decided that you should go, so you were there. Yep. Uh, and uh, and tell us about it. So, number of things are true. One, it is amazing, and I think there's some lesson here for all of us. Right? We are watching our civilization do some very bizarre and truly dangerous things, but it is worth understanding that a place like Colombia that was literally uh, impossible to go to because of the danger is now quite hospitable. Now I was told that there was a certain amount of danger walking around, not so much from things like the FARC who apparently still exist and still oh, they do? harass people. Well, they've been driven farther from uh, inhabited places is my understanding. They've been driven effectively farther into the jungle by a concerted military effort. Mm -hmm. um, and so the danger is more about uh, petty crime and things like that. Uh, I must say, I didn't feel that danger um, at all. I walked around as much as I could in Bogota and then later in the, the back country, which I'll tell you about. But Anyway, it was, there's something profound about being in a place that you literally couldn't go um, at an earlier point and now being able to walk around freely. And you do see police presence all over the place. Um, I was, I probably shouldn't have been surprised at how different it felt from Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Very close together, of course, and they, there are some similar things about them, the capitals and the Andes, and they have, uh, you know, lowland tropical forest and all. So there's some things about the country that are superficially similar, but it really, there was only one or two places that it really felt like, yeah, this could be Ecuador. So that was, that was interesting. 
I am very excited for us at some point to explore, well, for me to get to Colombia, but for us to also get to Venezuela and Bolivia as well as Peru. And Peru, yeah. Because, uh, you know, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Venezuela, I want to say, Ecuador and Bolivia for sure, and maybe parts of Peru and parts of Bolivia are sort of understood to be much more similar. Uh, and and yet, you know, Ecuador has so many different ancient cultures and um, and modern ecosystems as well. So it's not it is both surprising and not surprising that uh, Colombia, which, as you say, is superficially similar in terms of being a South American country with you know with high Andean all the way to Amazonian ecosystems um, and a and a capital that you were in in the Andes at altitude um, should you know be reminiscent to some degree, but also wildly different. Yeah. Uh, reminiscent, but wildly different. And, you know, when I think about that, the difference between American states, right. you know, you, and oh, West my, of the Cascades and Washington feels different from Idaho. Right. right. And even <laughs> right. West of the Cascades from, you know, East of the Cascades is right. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. It's radically different. So anyway, it's maybe not as surprising as, as I was surprised. Um, but I, I noticed some interesting things. First of all, um, Colombia had serious COVID mandates and travel restrictions, which it has recently lifted. I was, which was why we weren't going to go originally. Yeah, right? I mm-hmm. was required to have a negative COVID test within, I think, twenty-four hours of travel to get into the country, and they did ask me for it, so that is still there. But there was no other restriction. But I noticed the following interesting pattern. I saw far more people wearing masks than I would say is true anywhere in the United States that I've been really? uh, in the last six months. Hmm. Um, which, if you were to compare between American states, I would say that masks were a really good proxy for how crazy people were over COVID narrative, right? At this, this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was absolutely not the case in Colombia. In fact, the pattern was random as far as I could tell. You would frequently see people walking down the street, talking, enjoying life, and one was wearing a mask and the other wasn't wearing a mask. They're outdoors. And I I began to puzzle over this because, you know, it's such a, you know, uh, a flashpoint in our culture, you know, whether you are or aren't on board with whatever the narrative is, that, you know, it's really, it's it's wrecking relationships. And there was no sign of that here. So the question is really, why, if there's no sign of that, if people don't, you know, if one person who believes in the masks isn't feeling the need to implore their friend, oh, you should wear it too because you might get COVID and it'll be this, that, and the other, what is going on? Was it always so? I mean, I have I have seen pairs of people walking down the street in you know west west of the mountains on the west coast, uh, in which one is masked and one is not. Uh, I think every time the woman is masked and the man is not, when when it is a couple like that, uh, is is that a pattern that you noticed? Uh, I would say it was more women than men, but. It was there was really very little signal that I could find. Maybe there was signal and I just didn't figure it out. But mm-hmm. anyway, I also noticed some other things um, that I think are connected. And I'll tell you what I put together, which I did run by um, my host, and he he 
I think thought it was credible. But the doctor what, who put together the conference, who yeah. I don't, I don't know if we asked him if we could mention him. Oh, I, I yeah. feel confident we can uh, at least just say, uh, Doctor Ben. Um, mm-hmm. So what, the other thing I noticed was that Colombians were very much going on about their lives. There was much less of a sense of COVID trauma having disturbed normal patterns. This looked like Latin Americans doing what Latin Americans do, right? I was there over a weekend in Bogota. Mm -hmm. People were uh, dancing. Not only were they dancing in places where dancing was the thing, but, you know, couples would get up and they were dancing in a cafe because the song that was playing delighted them or whatever. Mm. So people were falling in love. They were holding hands. They were dancing. They were singing. They were, there was a great, uh, I uh, I had to work a little bit to find an authentic food place and I was uh, getting dinner there in the place next door. Because you were staying in like conference land. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was in conference land. Yeah. So it was a long walk to anywhere, but um, but there was a great, really good band playing a lot of... This is at the Colombian Steakhouse that you found. Yeah. Uh-huh. They, they, were, they were next door and they were playing lots of uh, Latin rock songs that I didn't recognize, but that were compelling. And then occasional covers of songs that I, you know, both know and like. I can't name off the top of my head what the Colombian... Music. Oh, we got a cat with something in his mouth here. If uh, if that is worth dealing with, um, we're doing a little predation oh, interlude uh, here. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, I'm just thinking. Okay, I can. You know, there there are there are known musical traditions in I assume every Latin American country, and I don't off the top of my head know. Uh, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know for sure. I'm wondering if cumbia is okay. uh, yeah, is actually the the. But I guess I'm, I didn't mean to put you on the spot at all. I was wondering if you felt like you were hearing something that was Colombian specific or if it was sort of, you know, Latin American rock. It was young, modern, sophisticated rock. And the things that they chose to cover reflected the same thing. So like, you know, Radiohead, that's not the average (laughs) band you hear covered. Yeah. Um, But here it was. Um, So anyway... Life looked surprisingly normal. The masks were completely at odds with that interpretation. And what I concluded was Colombians have lived um, under various kinds of tyranny, lots of it driven by American drug policy. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've lived under basically a regime in which they lack control the large scale. And so what I concluded was Mm. that what I was watching was people who had learned to sort of send whatever signal you need to send to authority so that it leaves you alone enough that you can live in the interstitial space and that's your life. And if, you know, if, if decades at a time are going to be lived under a tyrannical regime, you have to figure out how to do the stuff of life under its nose without getting its attention. Yeah, this is actually consistent with um, the next new piece of art that we have coming out that's going to be on merchandise that we're working with our amazing artist on right now, uh, which emerges from a line that you gave, I think, at the end of the last live stream, or maybe it was two live streams ago, which is lie to a tyrant. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, what? do what you have to do 
uh, to, you know, to be real and honest. And uh, in what it sounds like what you're saying, even though there's not a particular tyrant uh, here that you're referring to with regard to Columbia, uh, like, you know, give the little nod to the authorities and then get on with your life. And then get on with your life, mm-hmm. you know, like in between places that it's watching, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, I thought this was great. This sort of, um, A, sort of reminded me both the fact of Columbia having gone from a place that was totally unsafe to a place that is now safe enough that at least I didn't feel threatened walking around. Yeah. Um, that is heartening, right? They've gone from a regime that was completely intolerable, you know, at the height of the drug war and uh, the the FARC revolution mm-hmm. um, to a state that is totally recognizable. And, you know, I mean, let's put it this way. Um, life there is crazy and the people there are crazy, but they're not as crazy as we are, Right. We're all crazy. All people, all these cultures have their own idiosyncrasies and their own... So what's the, what's, I guess I didn't expect you to say that. What's the crazy that you think you do see? Well, I mean, first of all, this, this is, this is another topic we're talking about. There is a way in which in Latin America, you and I have seen this so many different ways. Life is unfortunately cheap and it's very disturbing to see it, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, uh, exhaust that comes out of a truck that you can't get out from behind mm. is absolutely toxic yeah. and it's not and even no regulations nobody's even notices it it's so ubiquitous that it's just like well what would i even do to notice that some toxin is being spewed into the car i'm traveling in right mm-hmm. um people interestingly people huge percentage of the population on the roads is on motorcycles mm. right a lot of people aren't wearing helmets. People are, you know, women with their, you know, seven-year-old kid on the motorcycle going to school, right? All sorts of stuff that would jar you if you saw it here mm-hmm. um, is commonplace. I saw one very funny instance. Um, we were out in the in the backcountry, really quite remote, and a child on a motorcycle, he must have been... 12 years old at most, mm-hmm. on a full-size adult motorcycle. Just him? Just him. Mm-hmm. Uh, bear, he, he had no shirt on, as I recall it, certainly no helmet, right? Nothing like protective gear, right? He's on this bumpy road. Dirt and, road. Yep. He's got two pieces of rough-hewn lumber from, obviously, the local mill. Like dimensional tied. lumber, but rough-hewn. Really rough. Long, you know, long the, and thin. The kind of boards you would see, you know, used to... Siding? To, yeah, siding, okay. make a roof, something. Um, but anyway, he had the front of these boards, which were probably eight feet long, ten feet long, tied to the back of the motorcycle, and the back was dragging <laughs> on the ground, and he was just motoring by... Yeah. I mean, it was charming. He definitely solved the problem of how you're going to get the lumber home. But, um, you know, there was a way in which there was so much. And also, I, I have to say, I just can't even solve this puzzle. Somehow, these back roads in Colombia, there is always exactly enough room for whatever two vehicles have just met to pass. There's like, you know, three or four centimeters beyond that, 
But it doesn't matter, right? It could be two cars. It's three or four centimeters. And you're up be... in the Andes. Are you sometimes there's like a precipitous drop on one side, or were you not in? Oh yeah, situation? there was all kinds. Of, well, I mean, at the very least, there are gullies where if you were, yep. you know, uh, a few centimeters too far, you might end up sliding over and being stuck there all night. But sliding over and stuck is different from falling yeah, into the from abyss. falling into the abyss, right? Yes. No, it's definitely preferable. I think so. Without being all the way at good, you know. But okay, so there's a way in which. Um, Life is cheap in a way that is familiar from the developing world. But what really struck me was that I was now that familiar. There's nothing I can do about the danger, so I'm just not going to let it rule my life thing that happens in the developing world. Mm. I am now detecting that in the so-called first world, life has become very, very cheap. Oh, how? Um, well, I mean, if you think about all the things that have taken place during COVID, um, the fact that You've got, you know, huge numbers of adverse events. The press isn't very interested in figuring out what they are. You know, we're kind of not doing autopsies unless we absolutely have to. There's a way in which, um, you know, we're normalizing absurdly tragic deaths, right? Mm -hmm. Very young people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, young people. Yeah, sudden adult death syndrome <laughs> strikes again. Yep. Um, and so anyway, there's always, you know, that jarring comparison between your culture and really any other yeah. culture. I mean, it even exists with the tiny little distinctions between us and Canada. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the gap between your culture and somebody else's, the more profound the comparison is. But these comparisons now are revealing things. A, we're more traumatized than the Colombians by what we've just been through, mm -hmm. right? It, maybe they were toughened up by what they went through in the period before. Well, it sounds like, I actually, I actually don't know, but I know like we were also told that we must accept m more stupid things. So they were told to mask and they were uh, at least vaccine mandates for visitors. But, uh, and I don't know specifically about this, so it's possible I'm wrong here, but I know that in many of the Latin American countries, Ecuador, Mexico, uh, Costa Rica, I believe, and I and I think this is pretty much across the board, that early treatment was available over the counter f f from the beginning. Basically, that there was no attempt. And I remember, like the the head of state in El Salvador was busy talking about vitamin D early on too. Yeah. But you know the the drugs that you know we shall never mention by name for fear that we somehow become re demonetized, even though we were still demonetized. Um, were just available and people were using them and they were even in, um, they were even being given out by governments in Mexico, um, as, you know, understood to be, um, early treatment and in some cases prophylaxis packs. Yep. Uh, so, you know, that, you know, it's possible that some Latin American country didn't do that, um, but I don't know that to be the case. And so, um, even if you know, many people are still masked, and we know there to have been uh, vaccine requirements uh, until recently, at least for visitors, uh, that doesn't mean that the degree to which basically the gaslighting of the populace was happening at the same level that it was in the United States and Canada and the UK and Australia and New Zealand. Basically, the English-speaking countries of the Western world had such an extraordinary degree of gaslighting such an extraordinary degree of like, well, if you're trying to figure out what's going on, you must be guilty of misdis and malinformation, so we're going to shut you down. And it just went, it just went counter to everything. Uh, and, and I think, to your point, and that was such a switch from what we had come to expect, 
whereas the Colombians, having been effectively held hostage by not a government, but uh, a, a set of organizations that were outside of the government uh, for so many years, came to figure out how to uh, sort of pretend to pay allegiance and then go on with their lives. Yeah, I, I think this is quite the case that effectively under tyranny, I think I believe this, under tyranny one is always gaslit. Mm -hmm. And if you have had enough of that in your history so that you've kind of gotten used to the idea that certain channels are compromised and they'll say stuff to you and it may even govern what you have to do, but privately you don't have to believe it, mm -hmm. right? That that gives you a kind of immunity. And what happened in, in the United States at least was that people were used to these channels being noisy, but they were not anywhere near prepared for the order of magnitude of bullshit that flowed through them. And so, you know, I mean, it, this really is what the big lie means, right? The yeah. big lie is that the lie is so big that you can't imagine it's a lie because it just, it's beyond uh, what would credibly be misrepresented. Right. And actually, mm -hmm. this goes to another point, which, you know, it put me in a weird spot the day I gave my talk was the day that the CDC, and it's, you know, it's very hard to describe this with enough precision to be perfectly accurate, but the CDC recommended to the states that they put the... Not even, actually. So the CDC put together a, a, a committee of 15 people who voted unanimously to recommend that the CDC then recommend to the states. And so Wolensky still had to sign off, and of course she did. Yeah. But the unanimous vote by the 15 to 0 committee to, I didn't mean, we didn't get the punchline yet, to um, put the COVID vaccines on the recommended schedule for childhood vaccinations was what happened. Yes, so it's almost <laughs> impossible to even describe. Right. The committee recommended that the CDC recommend to the states that they require right. children to get these yes. vaccines in order to go to school. And, and, the, and already, sorry, but like already the fact checkers, like, well, people are saying that now it's going to be required by the states. And I actually go into this in my, in my sub stack this week. It's like, you know, this is what happens now. Unless you speak 100% carefully, um, you get fact-checked out of existence. And what the fact-checkers never say, because they are actually political agents and not fact-checkers at all, is actually, even under the best of conditions in which the states are really being honorable and careful and trying to do the right thing, which of course is not the case, but even under those conditions, the CDC's recommendation is what you follow. Like you have to actually go well outside of um, of what is expected to say. Uh, actually, I'm going I'm to do something different. And of course, you know, Florida is doing something different. They're getting no end of shit for it, right? Well, okay. okay. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna say it. Do it. Um, I am so sick of fact checkers. <laughs> I am totally ready for fact chess. Right? Can we just go up a level? Nice. Yes. All right. And then and then four-dimensional fact chess? Oh, wouldn't that be something? Mm -hmm. Man. I mean, yeah. and if we I use real like facts, I feel like that's what's being that done be... to us, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So while I was there preparing to give my talk, uh, the, the keynote, actually, the conference. Yep, yep. the plenary. Um, the CDC went through this charade. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was thoroughly absurd, right? These, did you see the video of the votes? Uh, no, I didn't watch the video. These were Zoom, <laughs> Zoom gatherings 
with sure. person after person masked on their Zoom call, oh God, presumably no. from their own home. Right. No. These are true believers. Oh, my God. Who have now recommended. Or, or they just, they know it's theater. I think these were true believers. It's worth looking at the video. But, I mean, true. Mm, but. True believers in. Wow. True believers in the cult that is now doing so. And here's the crux of it. Right. I feel like this recommendation actually crosses a boundary that for some they will follow it across but for almost anybody who's still got any independent mental capacity at all the idea that with a disease as age stratified as covid in the hazard it poses and a vaccine age stratified in the other direction for its hazard the absurdity of recommending these vaccines for children is unmistakable yeah no and I mean, this is i know you haven't read it yet but this is exactly what i was writing about in natural selections this week it is exactly this i mean that that was this is actually a piece that i had written many weeks ago and i was like i'm just looking for the right examples and we got two of the right examples with regard to trans and with regard to childhood vaccinations this week and i was like okay there it is yeah but at some level this is now an unmistakable atrocity Yes. Right. We are not yep. talking about an ambiguity. We are talking about recommending treatments that are dangerous and, in fact, most dangerous for the population in question yep. here. Yep. We're talking about denying people education for refusing them, for, for behaving reasonably. We are going to deny people education. <gasps> that, is not, that is like ghastly at an incredible level. That yep. this would happen to children. And then for the CDC to play its game, well, we're not requiring these things. We don't have the authority to do requirements. No, we're not. Heavens, no, we we're not requiring. It Many would be of the you had never heard of us before COVID, and now we're on everyone's, the tip of everyone's tongues. But we certainly don't have any authority at all. How could we? Look at us. All we did was recommend. If the states are going to, yeah, you know, you recommendations injure your children, following? that's the state's problem, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's amazing. And even just... The mind-blowing fact of, okay, let's understand the CDC. Let's take it more or less at, at its word. Why? Sorry, but like, why would we do that at this point? Because it is its own <laughs> reducto ad absurdum. Okay. 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 So if the idea is, well, the CDC is just making a recommendation. The states, of course, make their own judgments. That's, you know, why wouldn't the CDC under a democratic regime be, you know, a championing states' rights, right? It's, okay, absurd on its face. But now let's imagine that the states do what they are apparently going to do. You've got a bunch of rebel states that aren't going to recommend these things. Mm -hmm. And you've got a bunch of states that are going to engage in the usual slavish devotion to authority mm -hmm. and are going to require them. So now you've got a patchwork country in which the um, inexplicable, completely unnecessary harm to children is going to be done on a state-by-state -state basis. Those people who have the means to move themselves out of states are yep. going to have an advantage over those who are condemned to stay in the state that they are in because of a job and the need for it, or who knows? I mean, and, and you know, this in sort of with the opposite political valence, uh, this is true with regard to reproductive rights, with mm. regard to abortion, right? So, Absolutely. you know, we, and we've, we've 
always had the division over things like the Second Amendment, over reproductive rights, over death penalty. But now, for you know, the election that's in a week and a half, we've got abortion and now childhood vaccination um, against COVID on, you know, on, on everyone's minds. And there are a lot of us who find ourselves pulled in opposite directions by these two things, by knowing that many states are going to go stupid on COVID and preserve uh, the right to at least early term abortion for women, and that other states are going to uh, preserve the right to early term uh, pregnancy termination for women. And Or did I say that twice? <laughs> did I say the same thing twice? Either way, like stupid on COVID and... Um, to, to my mind, smart and reproductive rights, or the opposite, like, you, either way, you've got to take one thing that, that is not, is not sane, and it's not, compassion is overused, and it's weaponized, but it's not compassionate. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid it's worse than that. Um, A, to the extent that what we have are ideologies, political ideologies or political banners, mm -hmm. and that these banners essentially have an incoherent package of beliefs that comes with them, things that actually are not inherently related to each other. Right. Um, but, right. The, you know, my right. team believes these things and not those things. Yeah. And that this is now going to become a geographic phenomenon where there, we are yep. losing the agreement that holds us together as a nation. This obviously leads in the direction of some sort of dissolution of that nation, which is, of course, a, a extremely short-sighted catastrophe and leaves lots of us stranded, right? Stranded where we would like to choose where to live as is a constitutionally protected right. Mm -hmm. We would like to choose where to live based on things other than the ideology of the governance structure. That is mm -hmm. the exact opposite of living in a free country where the, the, the ideology of those in power in your state is such a profound influence in what you can and cannot do and how you will and will not live that it might cause you to have to move mm -hmm. between states. I just, I can't believe we're here. It's really, it's really stunning. Yep, and both of these, both of these happened this year. Yeah, uh, and um, those in power in states, both in red states and in blue states, are making decisions uh, that are causing people to flee. And uh, and now it is, it is quite clear uh, that we've got, um, <laughs> we've got political things running in opposite directions with regard to uh, to the slate to to the teams that have been agreed on. And this, you know, this is this is in part the problem of a two party system. There are a lot of us who, uh, you know, for us, we've always voted blue. Um, but there are a lot of people who've always voted red who are now going like, I can't do that anymore, but I can't go blue. And I was, I've always voted blue, I can't do that anymore, but I can't go red. Like, where, where are the options that actually represent careful, nuanced thought and care for both individuals and recognizing that we live in a society uh, and, and are going to need some society-level protections? Like, where is that party? Where are those politicians? They, they exist. It, like, 
one person here, one person there. We got Tulsi Gabbard saying, I'm done with the Democrats. Um, but it's not, as far as I know, she didn't say I'm becoming a Republican because like that's that's not an option, right? Like neither of these parties is an option anymore for a very large number of us. All right, so two, two more points. One, the division and now increasingly geographic division right? Profound enough to cause you to move rather than just grumble at the people who run your state. Um, That thing is also causing the loss of nuance in the positions. Even the position that is closer to your own has lost nuance because the point is the people who constitute a natural break on the perspective aren't in power enough to matter, right? Mm -hmm. And so in other words, if it's one party rule in each state, right? Then what you get is, you know, look, I'm not comfortable with uh, the blue team's uh, complete abdication of responsibility over reproductive rights. As I've said many times, I I believe the right to uh, an abortion exists and that right decreases through the... You said blue team. Yeah. Well, the blue team seems to think it's sophisticated to... Imagine that there is nothing morally interesting that happens at all until the moment of birth. And, and the point is, well, I don't think any rational, rational person believes that. But if the idea is you have to choose between, you know, sacred zygotes. The two, set, the, the two points, conception and birth, are the only moments in, uh, in a human life that matter at all right. in discussing whether or not abortion should be allowed. No, sorry. Someone else set those as the two moments are the ones we have to be talking about, and neither of them is the right one. They're both intolerable. And I'm not saying, you know, I actually think that the religious perspective is tolerable at the individual level. An individual can believe that coherently and in a morally consistent way, but you can't apply it across a population where Mm -hmm. religious beliefs vary, right? Right. That's not, that's not acceptable. What's more, um, you know, as we talked about before, the idea that the sacredness of zygotes is such that you have to, um, you know, that women have to carry the product of rape to term, right, is, is bonkers because yep. the point is this actually generates a strategy for rapists. It's not what you, you know, it's not what you do. Um, so the lack of nuance on both sides is a disaster. And the idea is that now we're going to have to pick your poison, like which, which bad philosophy do you want to live near? Right or live under is is not a good thing. So anyway, the CDC made its move right before I gave my talk and I felt compelled actually, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of person would I be if I saw a, a an atrocity, a slow motion atrocity unfolding in front of me, a medical atrocity, and I didn't say so at a medical conference. So I took the risk and I, told them exactly what I thought this meant and exactly what it implies about where we are in history and didn't know how that was going to go over. But it actually, um, I got lots and lots of positive feedback over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I may at some point make that uh, piece. I, you know, as you know, I don't usually, I don't ever write a talk in advance, right? I may have notes and <laughs> know where I'm going. In this case, first time in my life, I wrote it out word for word. It really needed to be precise. So um, anyway, that was interesting. Um, Interesting that the conference, you know, a medical conference full of people who 
I can't say that they all shared the perspective, but enough of them did that, you know, the feedback was not, you're a crazy person, but it was, whoa, thank you for saying that. Just to be clear, it wasn't mostly allopathic doctors. It was mostly naturopaths and osteopaths. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. It was a a heterodox conference for sure. But, you know, I I don't know what the total number was. A lot of people were uh, remote. There were hundreds of people in the room. I think there was a thousand. Yeah, more than a thousand. Yeah. um, Who were attending some way. In some way. So anyway, that was, that was fascinating. Um, but okay, I guess there's also, maybe I should just move on to the, after the conference was over, um, my host, uh, did me the honor of, uh, letting me join his family on an adventure where he took me deep into the Andes to a highly unusual rock formation that unfortunately I don't have any pictures ready um, to show. Um, but in any case, basically the, you know, it's cold, high altitude Andes is a location. The, the Andes are, at least in this spot, and I think all over, are the result of sea uplift. So mm-hmm. this is an ancient sea floor has been lifted, um, you know, thousands of meters. So it's going to be limestone. Yeah, it's limestone, karst. And, and just, um, you know, people who haven't spent time in the tropics at all, um, or if they've only spent time in the lowland tropics, like they went on a, like a, a jungle adventure to Costa Rica or something, uh, will imagine simply that the closer to the equator you get, the hotter it is, right? Um, but as is you know, interesting and relevant to things that we have um, thought and about and worked on, and specifically as you have worked on with regard to latitude diversity gradient, just as um, the biota gets more diverse the closer to the equator you get, um, it also gets more diverse the closer to sea level you get. And that analogous pattern is also consistent with uh, the farther from the equator and the farther from sea level. So both latitudinally and altitudinally, it gets colder and drier and less diverse. And so you could be real close to the equator, as you were pretty close to the equator there, uh, but at 8,000 feet, and it's really cold. It's quite cold, and uh, the biodiversity, as you point out, goes down. I mean, it's still plant-wise, it was pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you lose like the charismatic megafauna first, just like you know at the poles, you don't get a lot of terrestrial, you, know, you don't get diversity of terrestrial uh, megafauna. Yes, um, except and- except there are interesting exceptions, and one of my favorite creatures is an exception. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an inverse altitudinal gradient to a point. There's mm-hmm. obviously a point at which you're so high it's not true, but yeah. um, the hummingbird diversity. Yes. Yes, yes. Goes uh, down. It's still there are a fair number of hummingbirds in the Amazon, but there are more of them at the uh, mid and semi high elevations. And I'm like three to six thousand feet ish, something like that, right? Cloud forest and even a little bit, a little bit into Paramo, but it sort of they start to die off as you get higher. Yeah, not die. Yeah, there there are some. You're, you're at the edge of their range. Up in Paramo, yeah. actually, Zach, would you show some of these uh, creatures? Yeah, Whatever order, yeah. All right. This is so, one of your photographs from yeah, this trip? Yeah, can you move? Uh, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, this actually, so well, this is actually. If you actually, can move the picture of us to the other corner, maybe if you can't, in, you can't. This is yeah. in Bogota. Really? And, I and was, Bogota is at five, 6,000 feet, something like that? Yeah, know. it's it's, uh, it's, a, it's above five. Um, so higher than Denver. Anyway, I went to the, I was feeling uh, I don't know, I, I was having a nature deficit disorder moment and I you know I was 
stuck in Bogota. I couldn't get out of Bogota far enough to see stuff. So I went to the botanical gardens, which were actually spectacularly good, really oh. beautiful. Um, no, Bogota is actually at 86. Really 60. high. Yeah. Yeah. Third highest capital in South America after Quito and La Paz. Yeah, it's uh, it's up there. So here. Wait a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna just check this. I'm not sure I believe this. Um, you keep going. All right. Yeah. So I went to the botanical garden hoping to find nature, and I did find a couple interesting things. I found uh, a Cecropia tree, a tree that you and I are. That's uh, a big genus, but. Um, you and I are well familiar with Cecropia. It's an early successional tree. It puts out a fruit that's actually slightly tasty, certainly not bitter. Um, but anyway, bats and birds love it. I don't think there were any fruit bats at this altitude. In fact, I'm sure there weren't. So just early successional means it comes in early, it grows fast, its wood is light, it dies fast. It, you know, yeah, and in this case, Cecropia's wood is light. It lives fast, it dies young. Yeah, they're like balsa, which is the one that most people will think of when they think of like what's a tropical wood that's not a hard wood that you know you use that's light. Right. Yeah. Cecropia is light not by virtue of the wood being less dense, but by these uh, cavities that are in every segment of the tree. Right. Which get inhabited by Azteca ants. But anyway, I found some Cecropias in the in the um, botanical garden that were in fruit, and there were lots of birds flying in and out, which was cool. Okay. But I wanted to find hummingbirds. I love hummingbirds, and I love photographing hummingbirds, and I was just not having any luck. And then finally I heard one in another corner of the botanical garden. And you hear that, like, chip, chip, chip. Yeah, that chip, chip. Um, and I, uh, I didn't think I was going to be able to chase it down. And I saw it. It was kind of high in the tree, you know, no chance of a photograph, but at least I saw it. And uh, then it moved down, and I started to figure out its pattern, you know, where it was going, where it was feeding. And anyway, I eventually um, managed to get a couple of nice photographs of it uh, right before right before sunset. And so, uh, you want to go to the next picture? The next picture is not of the hummingbird. Yeah, it's not of a hummingbird. These guys... What is it? Um, I am not 100% certain. Let me tell you what I saw and see if you can figure it out. I, can't, I don't have a, a super They look flycatchery. And what happened here, so I think if they were flycatchers. There's just one bird in this photograph. No, nope, right? there are two birds. You see so, the yellow breasted bird. And oh, that looks like see, a fruit from here. Like, just, this is so far away and so small. Like, this is, this is not a fair test for me. You no. have to show me the picture up close. <laughs> Nothing to do about it. Yeah. Um, Anyway, this second bird that has its wings outstretched here was doing this interesting thing that I took to be a display. It was hovering in front of this other bird that's sitting on a branch. Now, the thing, though, is these are both yellow-breasted, so I don't think it's a flycatcher because I think the flycatchers where I was were dimorphic, and so I think this has to be two males. Somebody who's watching yeah. is going to tell me that maybe maybe I've got it wrong. Either these aren't flycatchers or that this particular... I mean, flycatcher is a big, big group. Big so, group. Um, I don't... I have not... Um, I've got a cool bird guide to uh, the birds of the Andes, including Columbia, that, but it's still in a box, and I didn't All know right. that we were well, going to be doing this. But um, there, are, there are a lot of flycatchers, and flycatcher is, if memory serves... A clade. It's a description of history rather than just a description of yep, ecology. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and I, 
I believe that many places that there are flycatchers in the Andes, there are multiple species. That said, within a clade, it would be very interesting if some of them were polygynous and some of them were monogamous. The, yeah. the reason that's relevant here, as you know, is you said that you think they're dimorphic. If they're dimorphic, they're probably polygynous. If they're uh, not dimorphic, if the males and females look alike, they're probably monogamous. Yep. Yeah. And in fact, monogamy is common enough in birds that if the clade has many species in this spot, then probably some of them are. So anyway, maybe, maybe this is male displaying in front of a female, but we'll find out. Um, okay, go on. All right. This is a large dragonfly. Uh, go on. This is okay. all Bogota or is this... Um... No, no. We are now uh, actually in the uh, uh, outskirts of a town called Vialeba, which is a colonial, well-preserved colonial uh, town, kind of mission architecture. It's a very beautiful place. Um, and uh, so that was that was where the, that, that potential flycatcher was. This guy is actually in the limestone karst location, which is uh, a near a town called Pignon. Um, and anyway, this particular uh, photo, that's actually um, a plant that you and I have grown. It's hard to get it to flower, but it's Crocosmia. Yeah. And this hummingbird was, was feeding there, which I thought was really cool. Um, so that's, that is a different Crocosmia than we have grown here in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm not surprised that there are multiple Crocosmias. Um, but you also came back saying that you think Crocosmia is native to the Andes. I asked and one, you know, it's always difficult to know, you know, whether they're telling you that it's just found commonly in people's gardens or whether it's truly a wild plant there. But yes, that's what they, they told me was that that plant is, uh, wild in the area. Um, okay, you want to go to the next one? And then here, uh, Edgar, who was our... That's the name of the bird? Guide. No, no, the bird's mm. not Edgar. Okay. Um, Edgar uh, is I mean, a it could be. lovely gentleman who invited me to, you know, he saw I was interested in hummingbirds and he invited me to his house where he had indeed, he and his wife have planted a tremendous number of hummingbird plants, which actually makes the photographic job much more difficult because you never know where the bird's going to be. Just this, point of order. Uh, yep. It looks like Crocosmia is native to South Africa. Oh, well, not, there you go. Not. So that must mean it's either, I, I can't imagine it's invasive, so it must be just grown ornamentally in the Andes. Um, okay, so anyway, he invited me over and uh, it made it really oh, difficult. one species endemic to Madagascar. Interesting. Really? Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little search engine is a dangerous thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that's all I have photo-wise. That's beautiful. And that's, that's um, I'd have to go back and look, but I think you've shown three different species of hummingbirds. Absolutely. I think yeah. it was a violeteer and a hermit and uh, I've forgotten what the third one is. Um, that's interesting that you pronounce it that way. I look, I think that I think of it as the violet ear because that's its name for the, the purple splotch on the ear, I think. Violeteers. Yeah, well, I have Violeteers. no idea whether I made up the pronunciation or <laughs> yeah. not. Um, all right. Oh, I did have an anecdote I wanted to tell you. Awesome. I thought it was sort of, it's a cognitively interesting anecdote from from uh, Columbia. Okay. We were driving down this really, you know, pretty typical back road, which is mm -hmm. to say slow, um, super bumpy. Dragging um, long pieces of lumber behind you or not? Not a piece of lumber okay. attached to the vehicle anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, we're driving along. And uh, there is a rooster 
by the side of the road. Nothing interesting about that. Also, all Edgar the time. or different? No, didn't okay. didn't catch the uh, the gentle bird's name. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the rooster. As we reached the rooster, the rooster lifted its head up from feeding and darted in front of us, nearly getting smashed. Oh no! And I shouted, "Why?" <laughs> To a, to a car full of people who speak Spanish and French. It was just Ben who speaks Spanish oh, okay. and French. And English. And English. Yes, he speaks English as and well. And he yes. looked at me like, that's an odd question. <laughs> but I realized, you know, I heard myself say it and I thought, that's interesting because that joke, you know, sometimes I will prepare for a joke and I will wait sometimes many years for the opportunity to arise and the joke will emerge and it will either go well or fall flat. But anyway, it's a conscious thing. This was nowhere in my conscious mind. Mm-hmm. My subconscious mind had that one queued up, ready Why? to go. Why? <laughs> right. So did it get hit? No. 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 But I also have no idea why it crossed the road. It just did. And uh, somehow my subconscious... Oh, he ran all the way across. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I yeah. See, yeah. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was interesting because it suggests something about the subconscious mind's um, construction. I don't think it could possibly have been. It must have been queued up somehow, waiting yeah. for the opportunity. It's interesting. Your your setup. I didn't. I didn't get it because I don't think of uh, the why did the chicken cross the road is is not about an imminent. Like it. It doesn't. Right. It. It doesn't place us at any particular moment. Otherwise. So in this case, I thought the why was about like why now. Like what are you doing? <laughs> What right. is wrong with you? Oh, yeah, there's lots of reasons to ask that question. Yeah. But I know why I asked it, and I just didn't, didn't see it coming. And you also don't have an answer? No, I don't. No Although it did remind me. I can't remember. I'm, I'm a little frustrated that I can't remember. Did I... I once constructed very consciously a, uh, a, a joke in this genre. Did I talk about it on Dark Horse? Here, I'll try it on you. Either way. <laughs> your your either producer way. slash eldest son and I don't know. You're we don't know. Both rolling your eyes at me simultaneously. No, we're just shrugging our shoulders like, I don't know. All right. yeah. Why did the dinosaur cross the road? <sighs> because it was chicken. Oh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like that one. Yeah, it's, that's kind of, good. It's, it's a well-constructed yeah, yeah, joke. Yeah. It didn't result in a tremendous amount of laughter, which is usually not a good sign. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. it is what it is. No, I like it. It's yeah. good. It's phylogenetic. Well, it's, it's, it's a, a thoughtful joke. It's, it's a not, thought. Yeah. It's phylogenetic. It includes a double entendre. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a well-constructed joke. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. All right. All right. Yeah, maybe I'm at the end of. Are you? You're, uh, you're, my you're done talking about Columbia for right now. Yep. Okay. Um, well, that's that's all awesome, uh, and I hope we. Uh, I hope the three of us get to go back there with you at some point. Oh, absolutely. Um, sorry, Doug. You're probably not included in that, um, but oh, she gets other adventures, doesn't she? She does. She does. All right. I want to talk a little bit about um, the AFT. Hmm. which is, um, it's AFT Washington is a state, quote, from their website, is a state federation affiliated with the 1.6 million American Federation of Teachers, AFL-CIO. So this is, um, we get we get this, this publication still, uh, because when Evergreen faculty voted to become unionized, 
many years ago, several years before we left. That's a whole story unto itself, which we are not going to go into now. But Evergreen faculty voted to become unionized. Um, and when that happened, we became members of AFT Washington and began to receive their publication. And somehow, despite our very public departure from Evergreen, they did not catch on. So we continue to receive this publication. And they've continued to send it to us even with our changes of address. So I don't really? even know what's going on. Yeah, but um, I, we got their newest edition while you were in Columbia. And I took a look because um, these these publications often prove interesting. And, and this one did. Uh, basically, I'm even more worried about the state of ed education now than I was before I took a look at, at this. Uh, there's a piece in here called Disinformation in Journalism, the Shape of the Landscape. Okay. So again, this is the publication of effectively the, um, te the teachers, teachers Union, including um, many people in higher ed, uh, Washington branch that represents the you know, the unions for most educational, most educators across the U.S. who are, who are unionized, which isn't all, but uh, is many. So um, this whole piece, again, disinformation in journalism, the shape of the landscape. Uh, the whole piece is really deeply slanted, as you might expect, right? It's, um, it finds nothing but truth and honor over in Democrat side and uh, sort of error and conspiracy thinking on the other side. It just it, it makes claims um, that whatever Republicans have said is clearly mis and disinformation and whatever Democrats have said is not. Um, and the problem, the article states baldly uh, about halfway through, is that the mis and disinformation are explicitly political. And you know, this, this, they are telling us, is what the problem is. So uh, specifically this paragraph, and I'm going to come back to this paragraph, but this paragraph in this piece is, disinformation is intensely political. Penn America, which is an AFT partner, did a survey of journalists last year that included a question about which potential sources of disinformation are the most egregious cases. 76% of respondents said right-wing conspiracy theorists. 70% said politicians or political organizations. Left-wing conspiracy theorists and foreign government actors didn't even come close at 35% and 30% respectively. Our entire political landscape is being reshaped by misinformation. So um, I'm going to read that paragraph again after I talk a little bit about uh, what I found on the PEN America and the AFT websites. Okay. Because... Oh, you didn't find mis- and disinformation, did you? I think I did. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess... You're not very surprised by that, are you? You're not. Uh, not as surprised as I might be. Oh, know. my God. Yeah. So um, at the top of Pen... So let's just, let's just launch right in. I'm like, okay, well, Pen America did a survey of journalists. So journalists we know to be very left-leaning, right? And let's see what Pen America is. The survey of left-leaning people done by what kind of an organization to see how much we can trust the survey results. At the top of Pen America's website, we have a link to their most recent report, which is titled Reading Between the Lines, Race, Equity, and Book Publishing. And here's an excerpt, and this is not yet one of the screenshots I sent you, Zach. An excerpt from uh, the piece that's at the top of Pen America's website is, recent activism and reform efforts have pressed for a broad scope of actions to overcome systemic racial inequities in the publishing industry and achieve sustained, holistic, and structural change. Pen America's research and interviews suggest that measuring and addressing racial representation in employee hiring, author lists, and published content are key metrics for evaluating long-term diversification. Okay, so we got um, 
you know, affirmative action 2022 edition, you know, the, the most egregious and actually anti-inclusive and nastiest form of, frankly, racism that's happening in publishing today uh, is being uh, explored and uh, appreciated by Pan America. Um, also at the top of Pan America's webpage, they, and there, now you can show the next screenshot, if you will, Zach, uh, they retweeted the author um, of an LA Times op-ed, which reads, I'm hoping uh, are he... Are you sure this is the screenshot you want to show? The, the tweet? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll go to the next one, but um, yeah, so that's too small for me to see. Let me just, uh, no, it's fine. Uh, I'll just pull it up because I didn't have it up yet. Uh, so this is a tweet by an author um, that Pan America has retweeted. Uh, if at Elon Musk follows through on his promise to create open season for disinformation on Twitter, he will risk destroying free speech in one of our global villages in the name of trying to save it. That doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound very good at all. And when you click through on that LA Times op-ed, uh, what you find, among other things, is and you can go to the next, uh, the next thing, is this paragraph. Quote, this is again from the LA Times op-ed. When arenas for public discourse are flooded with disinformation, free speech begins to shed its value. If audiences lose their grip on what is true and what is false, they can become primed to distrust everything, and it becomes impossible to persuade people, even with the most compelling argument or evidence. If platforms are riddled with propaganda on political falsehoods aimed to skew election results, prospects for genuine discourse on matters of public policy or local affairs evaporate. If the search for reliable information yields nothing but a morass of commingled facts and falsehoods, people eventually stop searching. So, clearly, having recently come back from from Colombia, I am in a, a mindset to try to translate. Please do. And my sense of what they have just said is that they had to destroy free speech to save it. Yes, that's, yes. Exa that's exactly what they said. Furthermore, the examples they give here... Uh, include, like, you, you can point to places where the so-called left, the Democrats, have done exactly the things that they're talking about um, trying to fight against, but they don't recognize that. The idea that the 2016 election was affected by Democrats who were coming in and trying to um, trying to make sure that Trump couldn't possibly be elected never shows up in these analyses. Asymmetry, asymmetry is the weapon underlying all of this. Yes. The asymmetric application of whatever standard or definition you, you want to apply, the whole thing is done, whether you're talking about um, detecting fraud in scientific publications, whether you're talking about um, accusations of some moral defect, any of these things. It just requires you to take the standard and point it at those people and, you know, do anything necessary to prevent it from being applied to your own side. That's right. That's right. So, as it turns out, the author of that piece in the LA Times, which was retreated by PEN America, is no other than the chief executive of PEN America. Really? So the organization, PEN America, that did this survey to assess whether or not there was political bias and mis- and disinformation in, in U.S. journalism right now has just a little bit of a problem with political bias. Okay, just a little bit. Okay, so AFT. Let's just go and check out AFT's site. So this is, again, I think it stands for the American Federation of Teachers. Although, yep. um, and again, they're a branch of the AFL-CIO, which is the largest educational, basically, union that covers educators in the U.S. Um 
In a piece near the top of their site, AFT's site, uh, called Pulling Together to End the Pandemic, uh, which uh, is not brand new, even though it's near the top of their site, uh, which was written as vaccine mandates descended in the summer of 2021, they write, this is the end of this piece, Every one of our members plays a vital role in our state's schools, communities, and the lives of Washington students, as well as in the union. Staying safe and keeping others safe by doing what you can, whether that's masking or vaccinating or both, is as essential as you are. The more we pull together, the faster we get the boat we're all in out of the pandemic. Grab an oar and let's pull. <laughs> I think they've revived the canoe metaphor. Oh, I hadn't spotted that, but you're right. This is uh, this is the canoe metaphor. Oh, my God. And it's also, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess this is, uh, when did you say it was written? Uh, summer of 2021. Summer so, of 2021. Know, uh, I think it, it's 13, so 14 months ago. Back when people still bought the idea that they now claim they never said that these things blocked uh, transmission. They're of, lying. Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, but this was uh, as uh, Inslee, this is again Washington State, this was as Inslee had already declared mandates for, um, I think it was, I think it was K through 12 educators, and then separately many of the colleges had, had mandated for their employees. And then a um, state politician who actually, we knew someone who worked on his campaign, had said, no, 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 you gotta mandate more widely. Um, so this is someone who would run on an extremely liberal progressive uh, agenda, who's now saying, you know, definitely force people to do things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, anyway, all of which is to say, that both the AFT and PEN America are both extremely, quote-unquote, left, I'm going to say pseudo-left, leading organizations. And the AFT has written this piece decrying how political the mis- and disinformation is, meaning how right-wing it is. And the only piece of evidence they provide for that is a survey uh, of journalists done by PEN America. Journalists are left-leaning. Pen America is extremely left-leaning, and like, and and stupidly so. Like this, I I still insist on saying pseudo-liberal, pseudo-left. This isn't. It's it's not. Yeah. It's not what the left stands for, right? It's the blue team, it's, which it's, claims to be left. It's blue team, yes. So, how many among the smallish number of right-wing or centrist journalists are going to respond to a survey by Pen America when right. Pen America is what it is? How how many? Therefore, you know, this is this is terrible social science. This is. Terrible logic. It's being used as evidence in a piece uh, in the AFT's publication, which is supposedly a piece by and for educators. How are we? How do we expect students to emerge from an educational system that where the union members are publishing this kind of crap, this total garbage that is passing for uh, thought and logic and research? It's it. It feels hopeless. Like honestly, when I when I read this piece and. I wanted to talk about this specifically because I think it's so uninteresting and banal that it would have passed by most people's notice. Most people wouldn't have read it, right? Like, why would you read such a thing? But my my point is, it's everywhere. The really bad logic, the inability to even track that what you have just cited as evidence does not constitute evidence at all. And in fact, the fact that you used it as evidence suggests that you couldn't find evidence if you needed to. And that the problem may be the reverse of what you think it is. Like, th this, this is extraordinary. It is, I don't think we've come up with a good term for it yet, but 
the idea that every institution, just like maternal instinct, is being turned to its exact opposite. That we have an academy full of academics who are learning to avoid doing their job at an incredible level, right? We've got, you know, presumably thousands of statisticians who aren't going to spot the abuse of their discipline. We've got doctors who aren't going to spot a pattern of medical harm that's right in front of them and completely avoidable. Everybody is going to avoid doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so the idea that a publication that is ostensibly about a union of people who are dedicated to elevating, to enlightening students as to how to think is going to be confronted with upside down logic that they will then steadfastly avoid noticing right i can't see that it's it's you know at some point you gotta see the pattern right every institution is the inverse of what the thing over the door says Mm -hmm. right the Center for Disease Control, is, <laughs> right? The Center for Disease Expansion. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right. So, I don't know. Uh, disease and funding expansion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It is, yeah, this public entity which is supposed to be dedicated to controlling disease is actually spreading medical harm and functioning at the very least on behalf of private interests, right? It's, it's upside down and backwards. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, so I know you wanted to say a little bit about um, Elon Musk and Twitter. And, Absolutely. Um, I thought that Pen America uh, op-ed, uh, that Pen America penned LA Times op-ed, uh, which uh, suggests that Musk's taking over Twitter is the end of the dem- <laughs> for the world, uh, not quite in those words, uh, would be a decent segue yep. to you talking about Musk. All right. So let's talk about Musk. So Musk obviously is completing, I think now has completed the deal for Twitter. Um, He uh, revealed this with what I think is just um, an epic stunt um, in which he carried a sink into the building and said that he had now taken over Twitter, let that sink in, (laughs) which is so clever. That's good. Yeah, it's really, really good. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a big fan of it. Anyway, I will say I find thoughtful people who worry about things like freedom of expression, uh, 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 informed consent, these kinds of issues, uh, are divided over whether or not Musk represents a huge win for those of us who believe in traditional liberal values, including Mm -hmm. free speech, or whether Musk is a cynical entity who is abusing the trust of those of us who want to see this as a very positive move. I find it interesting that we are divided over Mm -hmm. this. I must say, I believe those who are cynical about this... Those who see his move as cynical. Who see it as cynical. Because they're not necessarily being cynical. No, they're being cynical. They see, I think they're being cynical in the sense that something positive, the rare positive thing happens, and they are so mired in recognizing how bad things are that they can't even see that they have, uh, that, that we are in a better position today than we were a week ago. I don't, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just objecting to the idea that that's an inherently cynicism on their part. Well, I think, I, cyn- think so. I think it is exactly cynicism because they, what they are doing is they are being reflexive 
applying a conclusion, yeah, this is just more of the same, to something that is actually, I think, 100% unique and at the very least um, difficult to, um, to assess in terms of its impact. So what, uh, what do you make of it then? So first of all, longtime viewers of Dark Horse will have heard us say many times that zero is a special number. And the argument needs repeating. It's a, it's a really important one. Mm -hmm. The idea is if there was a university where they still believed in truth-seeking and would subjugate all other values to it, right? Well, all the reasonable people would seek to send their kids there, right? Were there a newspaper or a newsroom of any kind that were to decide, you know what, business-wise, we're going to take a gamble. Let's do journalism. Let's figure out what happened. Let's not think about whether or not this is good for our team. In fact, we don't have a team. We're just going to pursue the truth. Team truth. Yeah, team truth. If team truth had a newsroom, you know what? Instant economic winner. Everybody would want that publication. Even if they had an ideology and they still subscribed to their ideological thing, they would subscribe to the objective thing so they knew what was going on before they got around to screwing up the analysis with their political stuff. Mm -hmm. Right? Everybody would do it. So it's indeed mysterious that there isn't a single university that still functions, a single newsroom that takes advantage of the giant demand for actual journalism, right? Why is there no platform in which, you know, you have access to everybody and free speech is the value that is pursued, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, we all want to go to a place where we can listen to what we want to listen to. And yes, a lot of people will listen to garbage if we do that. But the point is, it's a winning economic strategy. Why it doesn't exist? So basic argument is zero is a special number. The number of functional universities has to be zero. The number of functional newsrooms has to be zero, right? The number of functional uh, online encyclopedias in which you can actually check out whether something is or isn't true has to be zero. Mm -hmm. What Musk has done here is he has made a credible play for taking the number from zero to something that isn't zero. He's gone non-zero. and I'm resisting saying from zero to one because that is, of course, the title of Peter Thiel's book, and I don't mean to evoke it here. Mm -hmm. um, but the point is, a world in which any property that has access to the population at large is a safe space, to use a charged term, mm -hmm. for the discussion of real stuff, for the pursuit of truth, for candid conversations, any place in which that's actually the governing principle is a mortal danger to Goliath. Mm -hmm. Right, Goliath needs the number to be zero. Today, the number is marching towards non-zero. And what's more, there's actually uh, an interesting phenomenon which I really didn't see coming. Not only do you have Musk having taken Twitter private with the explicit uh, desire to make it a place where speech is free with some limits yet to be described, but basically erring in the direction of free speech, right? But we also have Jack Dorsey, who is um, bringing a platform online with apparently a... Dorsey was the Twitter He CEO? was, and he, and he stepped down. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he's got some new project. He does. It's, I believe, called Blue Sky. Okay. So I don't think, I mean, people have seen it, but I think the beta opened yesterday. If I, th if I understand correctly. What's more, you have Rumble 
making a credible play against YouTube. Yep. Right? Now, one of these properties functioning and Well, what do you see as the Dorsey property? What 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 is it making a play against? Like what 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 part of the social media or media mar market is it in, do you think? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen okay. it on the inside, but okay. my sense it's is It's not it clear is, to me how it fits with the other two. It's here. a it's something I I'm, forgive me, Jack, if I've got this wrong, but I think it's something in the neighborhood of a Twitter 2.0 kind of phenomenon. It's some place where discussion would happen that would be governed by different uh, principles. Okay. Um, but anyway, all that really has to happen is one of these three plays has to function, and all the better if it were two or three of them, right? Because then one can get compromised and it doesn't rob the landscape. It doesn't take us back to zero. Mm -hmm. So what I want to convince people of is that a, I don't know if Musk is for real, but I everything I see, everything I know from all of those years that we did professoring and all of the unusual people that we knew, all of the students, this does strike me as a guy who's made so much money that he can afford to gamble this amount on something more interesting than money, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what he's doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that this is a business play. Mm -hmm. My guess is he's not surrendering the business play. Sure. But that the idea is, all right, look, he's a guy who wants to bring internet to everybody, you know, using uh, Starlink, right? He wants to take humans to Mars. This is a guy who gambles on big, interesting stuff. And while I have concerns about what Starlink does to the sky, I have concerns about all of these technologies. Mm -hmm. I think I understand the human being. The human being is somebody who, you know, A, uh, to quote Jim Rutt, hmm. uh, knows how to execute, right? This is a guy who isn't just an idea guy. He knows how to execute and mm -hmm. get stuff done. B, he, I think he's bored with the tyranny, right? <laughs> And I mean, you know, look, he's been part of it at times. He was, um, you know, a vaccine proponent and all. But the point is, I think... Well, a proponent and a proponent of mandates. Proponent of these vaccines, oh, yeah. a proponent of mandates is very different. I don't think being a proponent of the vaccines is inherently uh, a, a tyrannical move. Oh, I don't see a tyrant. That, that's that's kind of what okay, I'm saying. Okay, but you, is, you, you, you said that as evidence that he had been somehow over in tyranny territory. I think what I look, I'm watching a human being, very mm -hmm. unusual one, right? This is a really unusual person. And this is somebody who has interesting interests, which some of them are frightening, you know, the Neuralink stuff. I don't know where that leads. Um, I don't love the idea that people are going to look to Mars and think maybe we don't have to worry so much about the Earth. Yep. But none of it matters. The real question is is this guy good to his word? Is he doing what he says he's doing? You know, I have no doubt that he is delighting beating rotten people at their own game, sure. right? I know that that's got to be driving him. But I also do have the sense he is, he is interested in creating a platform where the conversations that need to happen can happen. Mm -hmm. Twitter's an interesting place to do it, by far not the biggest of these properties. But it is a place where journalists and scientists and other people whose opinions actually do change things duke it out. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, I'm uh, I'm hopeful. I don't see a better play on the horizon 
anywhere. And the key thing for our audience who knows what zero is a special number means is that that is why this is important. It's not the first of many battles. The argument of zero is a special number is that if the number is zero, we lose. If the number is anything other than zero, we win, which means he better watch himself. That unfortunately, the amount that is at stake here is the kind of stuff that Goliath pulls out the exotic tools to deal with. And... You know, we've already seen the threat of an investigation, you know, that they're going to go after his businesses. They're going to investigate him for attempting this. They being? The powers that be and the properties they own. But there's, you know, there's going to be a legal investigation into his business dealings looking for who knows That sounds what. like a governmental thing. Yeah, it is. That's, um, that's what I was asking. Who is they here? Well... I don't think they is the government. I think they is whatever has captured the government and uses it for its purposes. But the basic point is, look, I don't think that's the limit of the hazard Mm -hmm. that comes from making a move as audacious as this one. So anyway, it is what it is. He's a very smart guy. Certainly he is aware that he is up against um, the most ferocious concentration of power that has ever existed, I think. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if anybody's up to it, he he probably is. Mm-hmm. And he also, you know, he, if you think about, I'm going to mention he who should typically not be mentioned, but if you think about what Trump did, part of what Trump did that appealed to people so much. <laughs> He's not Voldemort. Ivermectin's Voldemort. Oh, Come right, on, right. Man. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Trump played in social media space, Yeah. right? He gave himself an everyman kind of vibe by, you know, through Twitter, really, mm-hmm. right? Do you remember the speech he gave um, in which he rickrolled everybody watching the speech? No. So he, he gave a speech in which he basically... I, you know, and yes, I had a particular aversion to watching Trump, as many people who had always voted Democrat did. But I have to say, I haven't really watched political speeches in a very long time, because they're all just oh, antagonizing and horrifying. Terrible. And, yes. and Trump uh, was no orator. He was very, right. very yes. difficult to listen to. <laughs> yeah. But... He actually rickrolled people? Like he what do you In mean? the speech, he says, you know... You know, he's talking to Americans. He says, uh, you know, I'm never going to give you up. I'm <laughs> never going to let you down. And everybody was watching it who oh, was familiar with this was like, wait, what? Did he just do that? You yeah. know? So anyway, but the point is, all right, no, say I mean, what this you is, will this about is Trump. Genius. But yeah. it, it, yeah. it was a kind of a humanizing, playful thing. And well, oh, I mean, that's that's his genius right there. Right. I don't I want to say humanizing, playful, but is... Uh, Figuring out how to get the attention and loyalty of people, even if, you know, even if and sometimes because by means that antagonize and polarize such that you get, you know, you know, at least some size of group that hates you so fiercely that uh, as fiercely as this group over here that now loves you. Right. Right. So. Which, is, which I, now is also the game the Democrats are playing, and maybe they were playing it all along too. Well, but actually, he was he was the one who was like, "This this is what I'm going to do." Right, and yeah. you know the Democrats try this, right? They're just not as good at it. Yeah, they're not as good at yeah. it. Yeah, right. You know, they tried yeah. to. They found a, a guy named Brandon. Uh, you know, 
who they well, tried to elevate. Different. They're yeah. not they're not good at it. Yeah. But um, but anyway, the point is there is something at the point. I always liked the battle of the fish on the cars, right? Where you know you, Jesus first fish. you had the Jesus fish, and then you had the Darwin eating the Jesus fish, and I can't remember what the the next Christian iteration of that battle mm -hmm. uh, was. Um, but it's fun. It's good. But yeah, yeah. playful yeah. is a good way to play these things. So yeah. anyway, Musk is like, to my mind, he's like white hat Trump in this regard. He's huh. very good at the meme game, right? Very white good. White hat Trump, okay. Um, and you know, I mean, the, the stunt with the sink. Yep. Okay, you're the richest guy on earth who's just made an audacious play by buying this one-of-a-kind property in which yep. the elites of the world battle it out with bots and everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's serious stuff. And what he does is he walks in with an actual sink that makes you know him look awkward because it's not easy to carry. Like, the dude is playful and he is having a good time, mm -hmm. which... If you, you know, well, and he doesn't seem it, it always seemed like part of Trump's thing was to create enemies. That the that the that the fact of an enemy class, which is to say, most Democrats, um, gave more fuel to his fire, gave gave more cohesion and loyalty to his to his base. Whereas I don't get the sense from Musk that he wants or needs enemies right like he's getting them but he doesn't i don't think anything he's doing is uh is after that or depends on it depends yeah no, on this, it. this is exactly it and actually i think i think you've 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 nailed it here he does a this is not a needy person right right, right. yes another big difference right a yeah. huge difference yeah. the 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 needy powerful man is a very dangerous phenomenon mm. this guy isn't needy doesn't right? seem to be not needy. Yeah. I will remind people, the day it was announced that he had become the richest man in the world. Musk? Yeah. I didn't know that was true. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know he was the richest man in the world? No. He's, uh, he's very rich. <laughs> and the fact that I didn't, well, well yeah. what's that? I thought that? he kept going back and forth, and so it wasn't like a specific point. No, there was a, spe well, there was a specific, specific point at which it was announced, and it was like the first time. You know, Musk has become this thing. But I mean, so you're going somewhere. Yeah. Remember that. I do think that this just continues to point out the difference that, you know, one of the things about Trump from well before he was president was he was always talking about his wealth. Right. Talking about where he, what his standing was. And sometimes it was lies, sometimes it wasn't, right? Um, but that's not, like, Elon just is. Like, right. He does, I, don't, I don't think he ever talks about that well, standing. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't, like, tweet, I honestly don't pay that much attention. His tweet from that day <laughs> okay. captures it. And it could be a brilliant ploy. Oh, didn't to, he was like back to work? Yeah, he was like, yeah. huh, that's odd. Back to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, that is exactly, you know, I, I don't think anybody ought to really be comfortable with one individual having that disproportionate level of power. Yeah. But if somebody's going to have that disproportionate level of power, you do want it to be somebody who regards it as... Well, okay, that happened. It's kind of just an arbitrary fact. Right. Back to work. And the fact is the guy does work. Yeah. He works a lot. And he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't working to attain that benchmark. He was working because he's interested fundamentally in what he does. And we can and should disagree about whether or not some of those projects are things that should be happening and whether or not there should be, you know, curtailment, et cetera. But uh, he's not driven by the social accolades and the public recognition of him having attained them. Yeah, the, I, I must tell you, maybe I'm a sucker, but I'm just not in any way 
frightened by his values, mm. right? I may disagree with them, but I don't have the sense that this is somebody who wants a world that I would think is terrible. I may disagree. Well, that... I mean, I guess I, I, I see in him a tech utopian, and I find that terrifying. I, I, I find the tech utopians, uh, as I always have, um, fairly terrifying. And I think that he's got uh, some naivete around, you know, around oh. living on Mars, for instance, right? And around what Starlink will do to our ability to understand our place in the universe just by looking up at the sky. Yep. Right? I agree. I agree that that's a hazard. But I guess the point is, to the extent that he's a tech utopian, I don't have the sense that he's an authoritarian. Yes, right? he I think that's right. He wants to liberate people. And, you know, he may want to liberate them to do something that we would find horrific. But, um, right. you know, right. he, liberating is, is the key ingredient. Uh, I'll say one final thing, mm -hmm. which is he is now actively searching and interacting with people on Twitter about the idea of, okay, now he's got it. What exactly is he going to do to moderate it? Because you can't not moderate it. At yeah. the very least, you have to... Um, you have to be able to at least receive... Uh, Complaints from people and have, you know, things like doxing taken down. You have to adhere to the law, yeah. first and foremost. Yeah. And then there may be things that are legal Presumably, that yeah. are clearly wrong. Yeah. Right? Pedophilia. Well, that ain't legal, but... Um, that's You said you, you got to deal with the legal... You, you got to deal with the legal stuff first. Yes. And then there's stuff that's this side of the law, but clearly wrong or oh, undesirable okay. for the platform. Yep. So you got to moderate it somehow. And even with the legal stuff where you could just say, well, that's the law. Mm -hmm. That's the line. You still have to figure out what's over it. Right. So, um, so there is a genuine problem. Now, um, I tweeted at him yesterday that there were some people in the game B space that I thought were very good at these kinds of puzzles. And that, you know, he was saying, look, there's going to be a council. And my point would be, there's some people who have done a bunch of thinking down mm -hmm. this road already. A council? Council to figure out how to, how to moderate Twitter. Okay. Um, but I would also say... Uh, it occurred to me later that back when Game B was a an actual group of people who met, mm -hmm. um, I came up with something like ha a plan for governance that was impractical. It wouldn't work. It was just a kind of a proof of concept. Here's something you could do to solve the problem, but you can't really do it mm -hmm. to a civilization. Um, but it occurred to me you could do it with Twitter. And so anyway, I want to make the offer. If he wants to... Mm -hmm reach out through any of the people we cool. know in common. And you think it'll work? For uh, yeah, I mean, it, let's put it this way. There's part of, the, part of the value of the idea is that it evolves in the right direction. And so um, I think it could work with Twitter, whereas I don't believe there's much there from the point of view of <clears throat> there's no, governing. There's no possibility of a, a positive feedback, like a runaway process. Uh, the opposite. I think yep. it would Great. inherently uh, tend towards the solution he's looking for. So anyway, is what it is. All right. Well, um, there's one more thing you were thinking about talking about. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of heavy. Okay. But I also feel like people will understand why it's necessary to talk about it. Okay. Um, I had a very odd experience this morning. Having gotten home yesterday. Yeah. Or no, you got no, home. day before. You, yeah. You, yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, you, you haven't been home very long. Haven't been home very long. I. Woke up with the sun this morning, thinking about stuff, and I was reading a few things on my phone. And I read 
uh, Caitlin Johnstone's piece about the about how people who depart from the narrative on Putin and Ukraine are viewed and treated. It's an excellent piece. I recommend it. Um, she's often very good, and she's really excellent at this particular job. So it's a good piece. Then I read uh, read. Steve Kirsch's Substack, in which, to my horror, he describes and provides some evidence surrounding Peter McCullough having been um, removed from one of his professional credentials and um, essentially evicted from his role as editor uh, of a major journal in his field. So this is a highly decorated doctor with an incredible publication record who um, Steve Kirsch reveals um, a personal email in which Peter McCullough says that he's been shoved out, he's been pushed out of this journal, um, and that there was no, he wasn't allowed to present his case, that basically he was just given the, the, uh, the boot over email and certified letters. And then Steve Kirsch reveals that um, he republishes what the journal says happened. And the journal says that Peter resigned uh, because he had other, basically wanted to go spend more time with his family or one of those nonsense things, right? So it's, you can see the two things side by side and there's no reconciling them. So something is afoot with respect to that. But anyway, at the end of reading Steve Kirsch's piece, um, I'm not sure exactly what happened on my phone, but somehow the next screen that showed up was a browser window. And in the browser window was a DuckDuckGo search, as far as I know, already completed on the word suicide. Which you had not done. I absolutely did not conduct a search on the word suicide in any time in memory. And it's not the kind of thing, you know, sometimes I search a word because I don't know how to spell it. I'm not sure. And so I'll search it in order to see whether I've got the spelling right. This isn't such a word. I know how to spell it. There was no explanation for why this browser window with that search would have come up. And obviously phones are complex. Um, I'm sure we can come up with explanations that would account for this showing up in that way. But I also know that um, we have been a, a sticky wicket for Goliath. And one can imagine that such a thing would, you know, could scare certain people off or worse. But anyway, I thought it was necessary just to say, look, I had this happen. I wonder if other people have had it happen, right? That or something similar where something that could be a message is delivered in such a way. Maybe somebody's got a technical explanation of how that search could have happened without, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what it would be, but without it having a nefarious explanation. But I did think it was necessary to say this is not, um, this is not, a thought that occurs to me. It's been a very long time since I've had any thought in that neighborhood. In fact, since having a family, you know, people have suicidal thoughts occasionally, but having a family 
displaces all of that. And I just thought it was necessary so that, you know, look, there are obviously hundreds of billions of dollars at stake and criminal liability and all sorts of things, the kinds of things that people do terrible stuff over. And um, I felt it was necessary just to, uh, to make it clear that if that was some kind of a message, then um, this idea is nowhere in my thoughts. The only time... If something were to happen to you. Yeah. And the explanation after an investigation uh, is suicide. You are saying here and now that it was not. Well, I will tell you the conditions under which I would consider it. Mm -hmm. The conditions under which I would consider it are, let's say that um, I had a terminal illness or something so destructive of the capacity to contribute to my family that I was much more of a hindrance than I was a help. In such a circumstance, obviously, there's an argument for this. Or, you know, under torture that shows no sign it can end, mm -hmm. where there is no hope, right? Such things, obviously, I don't want to say never, ever, ever, because there are circumstances right. in which this is a rational response. But what I will say is under, you know, um, I've got so many reasons not, you know, uh, as tough as the world is, I have a wonderful life. I have people who are depending on me, whom I love and do not wish to strand. I do not wish to traumatize them. Uh, I have selfish reasons to want to live. I do not see how this works out. Yeah. I do not like the idea mm -hmm. of, uh, dying and not getting to know how stuff that I was part of ended up. Right. That just, that galls me a little bit that that can happen to you. So, well, there's, there's going to be some things left hanging. Uh, sure. Sure. But you know, the yeah. big stuff that's in play, I'd kind of like to know how it ends up. Um, I so yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, I think it is, uh, I mean, I think the job is done. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a technical glitch. If it wasn't a technical glitch, maybe it was just a message designed to scare. If it wasn't that, if it was a warning, uh, I don't scare easily. And I, uh, you know, um, we can't afford to have a world that's governed by people who um, threaten as a mechanism to get what they want. So whatever the explanation is here, I feel the discussion needed to be had. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I don't know. I feel better for having done it. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this almost two hours. Uh, but we're going to take a break and come back for our Q&A afterwards. And we'll begin with a question uh, from our Discord server this week, as we always do. So another reason to get onto our Discord server, which you can get access to from our Patreons. And then we'll be taking questions from you, which, uh, not from you so much, because you can ask questions all day long. All day long. Um, you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And I guess there's one other thing I wanted to say, which I should also start putting the announcements at the beginning next week, which is that at some point, uh, probably near the end of November, maybe beginning of December, uh, we're going to do an episode, not at our usual time, basically talking about um, just different, just talking about stuff, products that we like that aren't sponsors, uh, that you know, often made by local producers, small producers uh, that uh, that we have come to really appreciate um, as a sort of a like 
if if you do that sort of thing as the holiday season is coming up, things that you might consider as um, as as gifts for those that you might be interested in, in buying gifts for. Uh, and so, although uh, this could result in no emails at all, it could result in an awful lot. I will say that our darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com email, darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com can receive uh, suggestions. Um, and what else? I think uh, we'll be back in 15 minutes or so with that Q&A and in the interim and until we see you again for the main episode same time, same place next week. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.